ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 33. And I was reading one commentary on this chapter, and this is a Christian commentary, and it called it boring. <laughs> and I said, wow, Lord, we're going to do the boring chapter tonight. But, um, you know, I was studying it, and you guys know how it is, huh? When you have an open heart and when you're open to the Holy Spirit, we know there's no such thing as a, as a boring chapter. As a matter of fact, we can probably use a play on words, and it's a boring chapter in the sense that it'll, it'll drill, it'll open, it'll, it'll dig deep inside, because the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so all Scripture is profitable uh, for us. And all these things were written for our admonition. And some people would probably look at you and think, man, you guys are, are, are living in the 21st century. You're, you're kind of weird that you would take your valuable time and drive however far you drive to study some ancient book called the Book of Numbers about stories that took place thousands of years ago. And yet, uh, even in our study today, we're going to see things that are so valuable that, um, you know, I think it's a wise investment. And I'm really blessed in studying this chapter with you tonight. As we look tonight really at the past of Israel, reviewing the past of what had taken place in their life as a congregation, and then anticipating the future when we get to verse 50, we'll see that. But look what we read here in Numbers 33 in verse 1. It says, These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. As we look at our study today, we're going to see the journeys of the children of Israel. Um, we kind of make a comparison. I believe it's really appropriate to do so. In looking at the congregational uh, aspect of it, we can also find a very personal aspect of it. As God leads his people through the wilderness, as God leads his people to the promised land, God will lead you as well. And it's very important that we really have that concept really concrete, really deep in our heart. You remember what Jesus told Peter? It was real simple. He said, follow me. Okay, this guy over here, you know what? What about him, Lord? And, and, and the Lord said, don't worry about him. Peter, you follow me. And that was when Jesus was going to go and ascend into heaven. That was when Jesus was going away. It still would work that way that we would simply follow the Lord. And that's the way I really pray that we live our life, you guys, that we follow the Lord, that, you know, he leads us by his word. And so you have to, by the spirit of God, study the word of God. And as a child of God, you will follow God. He leads us through the counsel of other Christians. And so when they give you counsel, you know, you take it to the word and you test it according to the scriptures and even, you know, just bring it to prayer um, he leads us as he lays things on our heart. And he speaks to us personally. He has our phone number. But the most important thing is that we realize that we have to be led by the Lord, that we have to follow the Lord, that as we're journeying and God is trying to take us 
to the promised land, to that place of victorious Christian living where there's a consistency in our character so that it would be Christ-like, not perfect, but proper. It's a beautiful, amazing thing what God does in our life. And here we see in verse 1 that you know, Moses says these are the journeys of the children of Israel. It says who went out of the land of Egypt. And we know that that's in reference to salvation. But he says by their armies, notice, under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And so the Lord used Moses and Aaron. He even would use the armies to lead the children of Israel. But I have a question for you. Were they the ones leading the people? No, huh? In all reality, they were led by the Lord, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Numbers 9, I, uh, I could read this every day. I probably should read this every day. It's such a beautiful, beautiful picture in Numbers chapter 9 about how the Lord would lead the congregation. It says in verse 15 of Numbers 9, Now, on the day that the tabernacle was raised up, the cloud covered the tabernacle, the tent of the testimony. And from evening until morning, it was above the tabernacle like the appearance of fire. And so it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, after that, the children of Israel would journey. And in the place where the cloud settled, there the children of Israel would pitch their tents. At the command of the Lord, the children of Israel would journey, and at the command of the Lord, they would camp. As long as the cloud stayed above the tabernacle, they remained encamped. Even when the cloud continued long, many days above the tabernacle, the children of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not journey And so it was when the cloud was above the tabernacle a few days, according to the command of the Lord, they would remain encamped. And according to the command of the Lord, they would journey. And so it was when the cloud remained only from evening until morning, when the cloud was taken up in the morning, when they would journey, whether by day or by night. Think about that day or night. Whenever the cloud was taken up, they would journey. Whether it was two days, a month or a year, that the cloud remained above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would remain encamped and not journey. But when it was taken up, they would journey. At the command of the Lord, they remained encamped, and at the command of the Lord, they journeyed. They kept the charge of the Lord at the command of the Lord by the hand of Moses. You see, it wasn't Moses and Aaron or the armies, even though there were kind of like the visible representation in one sense um, it was the Lord that led their life and I really encourage you to allow the Lord to really lead your life that you would have a heart so hungry for God so hungry for holiness that you would say my life is just to follow God and you know there are some things that are precepts and principles that, that dictate our behavior But not only that, not only your conduct, but just like your everyday, your everyday decisions. You know, one thing I've learned in life and I'm learning it more and more is that I wake up every day and I say, Lord, what do you want to do today? 
what will I do today, Lord? Um, and, you know, I, I really try to fall into ruts and routines and patterns because I find a comfort in that. I really do. I find like a security in that. But God just won't let me. And every day uh, he leads our life, you know, and we really have to have that heart. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 12. It says, Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. And so back in Numbers chapter 33, we see the journeys of the children of Israel and we see that they were just led by the Lord even though they had these instruments of Moses and Aaron and even the armies, it was God who led their life. And I pray that God would lead your life. I pray that you would pray. I pray that you would listen. And I pray that you would be willing to follow, whether day or night, where God would lead you. We see here the journeys. And so the Lord kind of does an interesting thing. In verse 2, he tells Moses to write down the starting points of their journeys. It says right there, at the command of the Lord, Moses wrote down this whole thing. Think about it. And there are, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. It says in verse 3, they departed from Ramesses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. And so we're going to see here that the Lord, he chronicles their journeys uh, from the very beginning, from the very first day that they came out of Egypt. We know here in verse 4 regarding the Egyptians and the whole, you know, death of the firstborn. That was the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. That was the 10th plague. That was what the Lord had uh, used to bring them out of Egypt. God says, I want you to write it all down. I want you to write down their journey. He says right there in verse 4 that God had executed judgments on the gods of Egypt. And it's kind of interesting. We're going to see later that God will tell the children of Israel to execute judgments on the gods of Canaan. But back in Egypt, God executed judgments on the gods of Egypt. And what we're going to see basically is that the Lord, you know, he is, he is definitely the one uh, that satisfies in us in life. All the things that the world has to offer um, will leave you dissatisfied. You know, and it's a real beautiful thing when you do things God's way. But OK, everybody take a deep breath because we're going to read the journeys. OK, <laughs> look at verse five. It says, and then the children of Israel moved from Ramesses and camped at Sukkoth. And they departed from Sukkoth and camped at Etham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. Now, you notice here, I don't know if you guys can see this too well from where you're at. But on the left side of the, of the map right here, we have them traveling out of Egypt, uh, coming over to Sukkoth, then crossing the Red Sea. And we're going to see them in Exodus chapter 16 and 17, the, the waters of Marah and Elim. 
And down here, eventually, they're going to get to Mount Sinai. Okay, then they go up to Mount Sinai and see where it says Amalek right there? That's right where Kadesh Barnea is in Numbers chapter 13. That's about 150 miles. Some say, according to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, that it's an 11-day journey. Now, we're going to see in our text today that 40 cities are mentioned. Okay, 24 of those cities are found in the book of Exodus. 12 of those cities, we don't have a clue where they're at, even according to modern-day technology. And 16 of those cities we know uh, in Exodus, and we also know where they're at right now. Now, you'll notice in our map right here that the majority of their wanderings or their journeys took place in Egypt, modern-day Egypt. But eventually, they're going to cross over to the other side, and it's going to be modern-day Jordan and even a little bit of Saudi Arabia and Israel. But um, for our, our, our text today, we don't have all the cities. I looked up a whole bunch of different maps, and, and there's not a, a lot of real information on that because a lot of these cities, we've just bottom line is we're not sure exactly where they're at. We don't know, and even John Corson was saying, we don't know, but God knows. And God took the time. John Corson was saying it's kind of like a video camera to chronicle every single memory regarding their journey. And to him, it was very important. We see here again in verse 7, they move from Etham and they turn back to Pi-Haharath, which is east of Baal-Zephon, and they camped near Migdal. And they departed from before Habaroth and passed through the mist of the sea into the wilderness. And they went three days' journey in the wilderness of Etham and camped at Marah. That's where they crossed to the Red Sea. And remember at Marah, you know, they found water, but it was bitter water. They were already complaining but what they did is they threw the wood into the water, which is symbolic of the cross of Jesus Christ, and it gave them the water that they needed to live by. But it says in verse 9 that they moved from Marah and they came to Elim. And at Elim, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So they camped there. That must have been a nice place, huh? They moved from Elim and they camped by the Red Sea. They moved from the Red Sea and camped in the wilderness of Sin. They journeyed from the wilderness of Sin and camped at Dafka, and they departed from Dafka, and they camped at Alush. They moved from Alush and camped at Rephidim, where there was no water for the people to drink. They departed from Rephidim and camped in the wilderness of Sinai. They moved from the wilderness of Sinai and camped at Kibroth Hatava. Okay, so all the way up to verse 15, they're journeying down here to where they would be eventually for a couple of years at Mount Sinai. Remember, the Lord had appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai. It's also called Mount Horeb. And the Lord had told him, you're going to come back here and you're going to worship me and it will be a sign. And that's exactly what took place. But then they departed uh, from that area right there, it says. And uh, they moved from the wilderness of Sinai, it says in verse 16. And camped at Kibrath Hatava, and they departed from Kibrath Hatava, and camped at Hazaroth, and they departed from Hazaroth, and camped at Rithmah, they departed from Rithmah, camped at Rimon Perez. They departed from Rimon Perez and camped at Libna. They moved from Libna and camped at Rissa. They journeyed from Rissa and camped at Kehelitha. They went from Kehelitha and camped at 
Mount Sheffer, and I looked all these words up on the dictionary just to make sure I pronounced them correctly. <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I'm probably butchering all these names right here. But anyways, they moved from Mount uh, Sheffer and camped at Harada. They moved from Harada, camped at Makhalath. They moved from Makhalath and camped at Tahath. They departed from Tahath and camped at Terah. They moved from Terah, camped at Mithkah. They went from Mithkah, camped at Hashmona. They departed from Hashmona and camped at Moseroth. They departed from Moseroth and camped at Benejakan. They moved from Benejakan and camped at Hor Hagidad. They went from Hor Hagidad and camped at Jotbatha. They moved from Jotbatha and camped at Abrona. They departed from Abrona and camped at Ezion Geber. They moved from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. Okay, so there you have the journey from Mount Sinai, about 150 miles up. Now they're at Kadesh. Now they're at the brink of the promised land, okay? Um, it's kind of interesting. The Lord chronicles everything, you know? It's a real amazing thing. He just details their journeys. He tells Moses to write everything down. But do you remember what happened in Numbers chapter 13 at Kadesh Barnea? Do you remember? They doubted the Lord, huh? They said, we can't have that kind of life. We're grasshoppers in their sight. They're giants. There's no way we could enter into the promised land. And, you know, um, I pray that wouldn't be in your heart. I pray that you would know God has a wonderful, amazing plan for your life. Um, we can't do it on our own strength, but we can do it with him in the equation. He can make us a man of God. He can make us woman of God. We can overcome the flesh and function faithfully even in this fallen world. But they didn't believe that. After all that God had done for them, after God had fed them manna in the wilderness and he gave them water from the rock and, you know, he parted the Red Sea. He defeated all the gods of Egypt. After everything that God had done, he's kind of like, you know, uh, sharing with them, flexing his muscles. But you know how we are? After all that God has already done for us, a lot of times what ends up happening is we, we doubt, huh? Well, that's what they did there in Numbers chapter 13. They, they doubted the Lord. And therefore, in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord says, Therefore, you guys who are 20 years old and above, all you who doubted and complained that were, you were going to perish, he, he said, you will. And for 38 years, they wandered in the wilderness. Now, the interesting thing about it is that there's no record of their wanderings. And we're going to come back to that. It's kind of a significant thing. God didn't write any of that down. He didn't write any of the wasted time down, the wasted opportunities down. He didn't write down any of their wanderings down. We just see it. They, they pick up. It says right here in verse 36, and they moved from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh. Now between 36 and 37 is 38 years of wandering. And as a matter of fact, when it's kind of interesting, when you read the book of Numbers, chapter 13, 14, you know, you see how they blew it, but it doesn't mention any of the locations there after that. It talks about certain incidents in Numbers chapter 12, 
when uh, Miriam and Aaron came against Moses or Numbers chapter 16, Korah's rebellion. It mentions a few things even about the laws of the land, when they would enter the land, but it doesn't mention any of their geographical locations. God didn't record that. Then in verse 37, it says, They moved from Kadesh, and they camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Edom. And then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. Now the king of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south in the land of Canaan, he heard of the coming of the children of Israel. And so they departed from Mount Hor and camped at Zalmona. And they departed from Zalmona and camped at Punan. They departed from Punan and camped at Oboth. They departed from Oboth and camped at Lai-Abarim at the border of Moab. They departed from Isham and camped at Dibon-Gad. They moved from Dibon-Gad and camped at Almon-Diblathame. They moved from Almon-Diblathame and camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo. And they departed from the mountains of Barim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as the Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. And so you guys are going to get a reward just for <laughs> being here and, uh, and reading through that with me. Thank you so much for your patience. But to me, it's a blessing, and we're going to talk a little bit about this, that to us it may not seem interesting, but for God it was. God is interested about every detail of your life. He really is. And as a matter of fact, it's kind of interesting. The Lord writes everything down. I think it's so cool. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but God has a weblog on your life, you know. He jots down our journeys. He has pages and pages about our own pilgrimage. He writes and records our ways, even all our days. And I just think that's so awesome when you see this, you guys. As a matter of fact, there's a really neat psalm. If you want to turn over there to Psalm 139, a lot of you are probably familiar with this psalm, but it's a beautiful psalm. In verses 1 through 12, it speaks about the omnipresence of God. But when you read Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12, about the omnipresence of God, it's not just a doctrine. It's not just a theological truth. He makes it very personal. That's the thing about it. And then in verses 13 through 18, it speaks of the omniscience of God. And David, again, makes it very personal. Look at verse 13. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And let's look at this, you guys. And in your book, they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. 
See, it's not just about a God who's omnipresent or a God who's omniscient. It's about a God who's omnipresent, meaning that he is always with you. David here talks about when you sit down, he's right there with you. And when you stand up, he's right there with you. When you wake up in the morning, he's right there with you. When you go out the door to live your day, he's right there with you. He's an omnipresent, personal God. And he's an omniscient God who knows everything about you. He doesn't have to read the book about your life. He writes the book about your life. He's there with you. And it says right there, even before I was born, the book was already written about my life, the days, even before they had come to pass. And so here in the book of Numbers, we see the Lord instructing Moses to write things down regarding the journeys of the children of Israel. Why? Because that is his heart. There's no such thing as a, as a normal day in the life of an obedient child of God. You know, God's always doing something. God's always stirring something up. He's bringing people your way. He's chipping away at you and changing us and conforming us into his image. You know, it's an amazing thing how detailed uh, God is. As a matter of fact, there's another real interesting verse over in the book of Malachi, if you turn over there. To uh, Malachi chapter 3. You guys have probably read this before also in verse 16 of Malachi 3. Now, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And it says in verse 16 that there, there, then those who feared the Lord, they spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate. On his name. You know, God's a writer. And he doesn't just write, you know, you know, I don't know, novels or, 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 or fiction. Uh, he writes about your life. He writes things that are going on. When you're there and you're fellowshipping with the brothers and you're speaking things that are edifying, the Bible says that there is a book of remembrance. And God is jotting all those things down. Uh, to me, I just think it's awesome uh, to know that about our God. Back in the book of Numbers, we see the Lord wrote all this down regarding their journeys at, at the hand of Moses. But again, back in verse 36 and 37, it's interesting to note that all the journeys are recorded, but the wanderings are not. That's a pretty interesting fact. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, unbelief means wasted time. Unbelief means wasted lives. And unbelief means wasted opportunities. You know, I wonder uh, uh, so many times, you know, why do we wander? Why do we go our own way? Why do we sometimes kick against the goad? I wonder if there are any here today that are wandering. Where you know you're not really where you're supposed to be. Where you know there's something that's not right in your life. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, that 
unbelief, it manifests itself in, in disobedience, a prayerlessness, or maybe it's a callousness of your heart. Uh, I do know this, though, that God has so much for you. He really does. And we don't have to waste those days and those weeks and those months and those years. Uh, God wants us to be right in the perfect you know, center of His will, just following Him as He would lead us in life. A lot of times what ends up happening, even as Christians, is I believe, and even in the church today, because we know in all honesty today, when you look at the church today, that there is so much superficial activity going on. People are not speaking the name of Jesus with boldness. And yet, you know, how can we sing a song and not speak about Jesus? Or how can we live a life and not let His name come off our lips? Uh, There's a big movement going on in the church today where you just kind of give a positive message. Talk about, you know, God and and it'll all turn out okay. Um, there is the emerging church. There is the submerging church. I mean, there is just so many things going on in the church today. You know, even in America, we know it's 3,000 miles wide and three inches thick. There is such a lack of commitment in the church today. People are not really sold out and surrendered and passionate and evangelizing and praying and reading and living. There is... Just so much missing in the church today. I think there are a lot of saved souls and wasted lives. And that's why it's so cool to be able to even read this and see, and just kind of take a mental note. You know, Numbers chapter 33, it's kind of a, a boring chapter. It's a, it's a boring chapter. It just kind of digs deep within my heart and it tells me this. It asks me this. Am I, am I really following the Lord? Am I really following the Lord? Am I walking in His footsteps? Am I living like Jesus would have me live? Am I thinking His thoughts? Am I speaking His words? Am I humble like He is? Am I loving like He is? Am I holy like He is? In the ministry, am I sold out? I mean, Jesus was a... Uh, a great minister, very, very busy. You would never know it. But he was always about his father's business. You know, I just really pray that we wouldn't waste days and weeks and months in our unbelief, which manifests itself in disobedience, in which God is saying, well, I can't write that one down. There goes another week, and there goes another month, and there goes another year. Yeah, but they're Christians, Lord. Yeah, but they come to church, Lord. Yeah, but they're not really following me. You know, and God will use our life because he's so gracious. But you know when you're really communing with God and when you're not. See, and we want to have that relationship that is intimate and personal. And we have that time with him. You know, looking at this, one thing about it is kind of cool. It it teaches us that we got to be careful. We don't live 
uh, in the wasted life and times and opportunities. And so in that sense, there's a, a big negative there. But another thing that John Corson pointed out, one other slightly significant perspective that we might want to hold on to is that the 38 years of wandering were years of failure in one sense, though they were also years that were forgotten. They were also years that were forgiven. And it's kind of a weird thing when, you know, when you're a Christian sometimes, and I know, you know, for us here, we have to have that real healthy biblical balance. You know, where we're here and we're sharing with you guys, man, follow the Lord. Don't go your own way, because your own way is is uh, is rotten to the core, man. I mean, it's just not a good thing. Follow the Lord. No, don't sin. But at the same time, it's an amazing thing to know that that when we do sin, that He washes them away, and that blows me away. But that's exactly what we see here. You know, Jeremiah 31, verse 34, it says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. You know, that's the way the Lord is. I know for us it's very difficult you know, but the Bible does say that, that that love covers a multitude of sins. You know, I mean, for me, that love would cover sins. I kind of trip out on that. But that love would cover a multitude of sins. That's kind of hard for me to figure out. And yet I know it's true. And how do I know it's true? Number one, it's in the Bible. Number two, it's in my life. I mean, how many times have I blown it? How many, you know, years did I waste? I mean, I didn't even get saved until I was 23. I heard the gospel many, many times. And even from then, since 1989, how many times have I failed the Lord and gone this way and done these things? And yet the Bible says in Jeremiah 31, 34, that he remembers them no more. And it's almost like here we have the children of Israel and they go down from Egypt and they go down to Mount Sinai. They get the law preparation to live life in the land. And then they go up to Kadesh Barnea. They blow it. But then for 38 years, they wander in the wilderness. God doesn't even really, he doesn't even write that. He doesn't kind of remember that. And he just picks it up. Okay, from right here, they go down to Edom and Moab and boom, they're at Jericho and they enter into the promised land. And in one sense, I think that's the message. And I don't know about you. I know that a lot of people, when they hear messages like that, they kind of come away with different, you know, um, I guess you could say applications. When you hear that God washes away all your sins, that he nailed them to the cross, what does that do to you? I mean, we know that's the truth. For some people, they say, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to go sin then. (laughs) You know, God washes away all my sins and I'm going to go do it. And yet, the very opposite should be our response, huh? 
I mean, if God is such a wonderful, patient, loving God, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And like Paul said, certainly not. That's so foolish. You see, we use God's grace, but we can't abuse God's grace. And it's not grace to get away with sin. It's grace to get away from sin. You know, we learn from the scriptures and even the saints that there are consequences of forgiven sin. And therefore, I think you and I should take this and be encouraged. Don't let the enemy beat you up. Sometimes uh, it's good to quote that scripture over in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And you've got to kind of say that to yourself. Don't let the enemy beat you up. God remembers them no more. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And that's the vanishing point. He puts them into the deepest part of the sea. And then he puts up a sign that says no fishing, right? That's what we got to know about our God. Here we see the Lord in the children of Israel jotting down their journeys, looking at the past. And then we see for the rest of the chapter, he's preparing them for the future. Because look what it says in verse 50. It says, Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Destroy all their engraved stones. Destroy all their molded images. And demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it. For I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger, you shall give a larger inheritance. And to the smaller, you shall give a smaller inheritance. There, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. But... If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And so the Lord has them look back and kind of like meditation. And then the Lord has them look forward in preparation. And it's kind of cool the way that it works. You know, one thing that I thought was very, very, very cool about this section is that a whole bunch of words begin with D. And I thought, wow, Lord, this is cool. (laughs) Notice in verse 52, what God says to drive out. He says to destroy He says to demolish. He says to dispossess the people of the land. And what that is representative of is for us to kill the sin. Right? But then he tells them to dwell in verse 53 and to divide in verse 54. And so the way that it works is God wants us to kill the flesh and God wants us to claim the victory. You see? And it's a beautiful thing. I was talking to the Lord about this today. I said, but Lord, we can't really fully kill the flesh. You know, and because we know that this sin nature 
it kind of rears its ugly head. It's still there. It'll be there until the day that we die. But when you read the book of Romans, you read the book of Colossians, God says basically we have to continually nail the flesh to the cross. We have to keep on doing that every day of our life. Now we know in looking at this from a historical perspective that the people of the land were given over 400 years to repent. They didn't. They continued in their sin. And so God, after much years of long-suffering, judged them by the Israelites. But we also know the picture of what this represents. Like I said earlier, the Lord judged the gods of Egypt, and now he wants the people to judge the gods of Canaan. You know, in looking at this, you guys, I really pray that we would catch the visual illustration. Remember, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. You can visualize them going into the promised land and killing the false gods. Then you kind of get an illustration of what God wants us to do in our own life. He wants us to kill the false gods. He wants us to kill the lies, to kill the flesh. You know, when we fail to keep ourselves pure, we suffer the devastation of our failure. And we see that right here that if they didn't get rid of them, that they would be thorns in their eyes and in their flesh and irritants. They would be there to harass them. And that's what sin does. When we don't get rid of it, it just it devastates us. But then in the last verse right here, it says, and, and the Lord says, and moreover, if you don't get rid of it, then I'm going to get you, God says. Sin will devastate us itself. And the Father will discipline us himself. And that's why it's very important that we drive out, that we destroy, that we demolish, that we dispossess the people and the impurities of the people so we are called to drive out, destroy, demolish, and dispossess the old person and the impurities of the old man. Colossians 3, 5 through 7 says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. And then over in Romans 8.13, it says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, here it is, by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And the Lord, just He just kind of puts that out there before us today. You know, unfortunately, the children of Israel did not obey this. You can read Joshua chapter 2, verse 6 through 15, and you find that they didn't really deal with this according to God's will, and so they suffered the consequences. You see, for the children of Israel, the primary problem wasn't taking them out of Egypt. The primary problem was taking Egypt out of them. And here you are today, and maybe you're saved, and thank God, God took you out of the world. But now we've got to take the world out of us. We've got to deal with it. God killed the gods of Egypt, but now you've got to kill the gods of Canaan. We can be faithful like Philadelphia. 
in the midst of perversity. This is not just a dream. This is not just some, you know, you know, I don't know, ideal that, that's not attained. No, there are some Christians who really take life seriously and we need to do that. If there's anything in your life, if there's anything you're toying with temptation, you're dabbling or dancing with the devil, all that kind of stuff, you know, you're flirting with fire, and maybe the Holy Spirit is putting His finger on it tonight and He's saying, you know what, that's got to go. And that's got to go. And you've got to yield that to me. Not just sins of commission, but sins of omission. You've got to start doing this and that. And we have to take it very seriously. Because the Israelites didn't. And the Lord told them what would happen ahead of time. He said, if you don't deal with it, then it's going to get you and I'm going to get you. And God says the same thing to us today. We can't be living in moderation or toleration just like all the nations. If we want to really enter the land and enjoy the land, if we want to stay in the land, we need to obey in the land. If we want to walk and run and fly like God wants us to, we need to die. And therefore, we need to crucify the flesh, the wicked, wretched men and women that we are. And God can help us. You know, in looking at this today, you know, there is the aspect of we need to make sure, you know, about the world and stay away from the world. But primarily, I think it's ourselves. Our flesh is our greatest foe. And that's the one that God wants us to kill. God, help us to follow the Lord and not follow the world and the flow of the world. Ephesians 2.2 tells us we used to be on the course of the world, but he rescued us from that, and he made us now not of this world. Real quick, some things about the world. I just want to highlight with you guys, and you can maybe jot the scriptures down. But the reason I say this is because the world goes a certain direction and the flesh loves to follow. Number one, I want to encourage you, don't be conformed to this world. And what that is, is they start getting you to think the way they think. And they have all their expectations. Okay, check those things out according to the scriptures. Number two, don't be spotted by the world. James 1.27 talks about that. Number three, don't be friends with the world. The Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity against God. Be really careful. Number four, don't love the world. Second uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 10 talks about Demas, who loved this world. And therefore, he left Paul the Apostle and most importantly, Jesus Christ. Don't be conformed, don't be spotted, don't be friendly with the world, don't love the world. And if you do that, then you won't be judged with the world, according to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 32. And so God wants us to be holy people. God wants to bless your life, and God, by the power of the Spirit, can do that. God wants so much to lead us, to take care of us, to go with us on this journey And so we need to make sure that we don't waste time. Don't waste a day, you guys. Don't waste a moment. You right now, right now, let's get right with the Lord. 
Although he forgives, we don't want to fail. And so may we be blessed to know that God is ready and willing to take us into the promised land as we nail our flesh to the cross each and every day. One quick thing before we leave right here. It's kind of interesting how the Lord says in verse 51, when you have crossed the Jordan. It's not if, but when. When you have crossed the Jordan. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, Lord, okay, we're taking this whole thing and we're looking at it in what it represents in New Testament truth. Is everyone here, Lord, going to cross the Jordan? Are all these Thursday night people here serious about you? And the Lord says, yeah, they're coming to study the book of Numbers. Yeah. It's not if, man, it's when. These people, man, we're going to cross the Jordan. You know, God is going to give us the victorious Christian life. And of course, I know I say that tongue in cheek, but I do think that it is impressive, at least to me as a man, that you're hungry for the word of God, that you're here, many of you here, for the right reasons. Not because you have to be, not because you got to be, but because you get to be. And the Bible says that he who began a good work in you will complete it. huh? He will complete it. And it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful thing. You know, I always pray this prayer. Ever since I heard Warren Wiersbe pray it, Lord, I pray for their direction. I pray for their direction. And Lord, I pray for their protection. Lord, I pray for their protection. And Lord, I pray for their perfection. I pray for their perfection, that God would direct us and protect us and perfect us the way that he wants to. It's such an awesome thing when you do things God's way and not your own way. And so let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for allowing us to be here today. Father, we uh, see the chapter, some might consider it a boring chapter, um, but I consider it boring in another way, Lord. Um, as you jotted down the journeys of the children of Israel, Lord, you, you teach me so much. And I just really pray that I would listen, Lord. I pray that my heart would be to follow you, Lord, all the days of my life that I would never fall into a rut or a routine or, or something, Lord, that is etched in my heart that's not etched in your heart, Lord. I, I really pray, Father, for us today that we would follow you, that we would follow you, Lord, by faith, believing and receiving, Lord, that you can lead us into that place of victorious Christian Living, where we nail our old nature and all the ugly things about it. We just nail it to the cross. Everything, Lord. That we could live a life of sweet and intimate communion with you. Oh, Lord, help us to dwell in the land. Even help us to divide the land. Help us, Father, to claim that victory by faith, even tonight. Oh, Lord, I just pray, just in case there are any here today who are struggling, or maybe some that don't know you, Lord, together we ask that you would bring them to where they need to be, Father. Uh, give them that 
grace to overcome. Give them that grace to be saved today. May every heart be surrendered to Jesus Christ. Again, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.